See, now I'm embarrassed. <laughs> Um, this is Everything Soon. I'm Marie-France Boisvert, and 800 kilometers to the east of me is a woman who recently described herself on Twitter as excitedly and anxiously screaming into the void, Megan Cox. Hi, Megan. Though I was referencing something specific at the time of that tweet. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm Megan. Thank you for joining us. So, Megan, I know you because of the internet, right? Yes, we know each other because of the internet. Um, so I, I thought, no, well, I was, I'm, I've been spending the last few days trying to figure out how to introduce this without taking up that much time. And I think the easiest way is just to say, well, we know each other because of fandom. And what is fandom? Um, in our case, it mainly means we write fan fiction, right? Yep, that sounds about right. <laughs> so I'll introduce myself first. I was recently fired. Uh, I gotta tell you, Megan, I'm not sure what the normal reaction to that is, but I think that starting a podcast is as good a coping mechanism as any, so here I am. I'm, okay, about me, I'm like eighth generation Quebecois. I grew up on military bases, though, um, and I have a skill set that could, that could accurately, accurately be described as haphazard in an interesting way. Um, so that's pretty much what I have to offer. I like to talk about stuff. I like to talk about things that have an impact on our daily lives, but that are often perceived as boring. Um, and also I like to talk about things that, you know, I think are interesting, but that seem underreported. Right on. Do you want to introduce well, yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And when I said right on, I obviously did mean right on, you got fired. That's great. <laughs> uh as I mentioned, my name's Megan. Uh, mm -hmm. I am recording from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Uh, I was born and raised here, but uh, a few years ago, my partner and I decided that we wanted to experience another part of the country. So we moved about as far away from Halifax as we could while still staying in the country <laughs> and relocated uh, to Victoria, British Columbia. Uh, we were there for a few years and we loved it. And due to circumstances, we had to leave the city and we decided to try Vancouver on for size. Uh, we did not like Vancouver very much. Um, I think it was just, obviously, uh, Vancouver I find is a very divisive city. You either love it or you don't. I don't feel like there's a whole lot of people in the middle there. We didn't, and that's fine, you know. So we decided to move back to Halifax. So it was nice to sort of, see a different part of the country for a little bit um but uh yeah so by day i work at a local university um doing administrative tasks and whatnot and by uh by not day or by night i uh i moonlight as a freelance writer um i write for a couple of websites uh, usually pop culture hockey related content and i'm also trying to uh, slog through uh, the quote-unquote novel, basically. Uh, yeah, so that's me in a nutshell. And when uh, Marie France asked me if I wanted to do this podcast with her, I was all over it uh, because though I don't have a background in uh, Canadian politics um, in an official standpoint, it's something that interests me a lot um, because it, it affects our day-to-day. And while I feel like a lot of publications or like anything on the on the Twitter sphere focuses more on the federal stuff, uh, provincial politics, I've really taken 
an interest in in recent years because that's the stuff that affects your day to day more or less. Yeah. Uh, and uh, people do tend to find it dry and boring because it's not grandiose or it's not it's not the stuff that's making the headlines all over the country. But for your day to day, those people, those counselors, those MPs, those are the people that basically make your life better or worse. And obviously, I'm interested in the federal stuff as well. Yeah, so I was just really jazzed to have, I don't know, basically an outlet to talk policy and, and politics and, and the goings on in our country. Nice to oh have God, an outlet for that. Cause that's a great way to put it, I feel like this is a great outlet. Yeah, totally. Because yeah. I can talk my partner's ear off for, for days, because we're very yeah. like-minded in that. So yeah, but no, it's nice to get like other perspectives and sort of get outside of my bubble. And I don't know, just I'm open to pretty much anything. I like just chatting about stuff and engaging with others, finding out what's important to them as well. So that's why oh. I'm here, because I think Brilliant. it's going to be cool. <laughs> so this is unrelated to the main topic of the episode, but I did want to ask you, um, do you think that fandom informs your worldview? Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, not even necessarily uh, the content in whatever fandom that you're a part of. Uh, me personally, I am very much sort of like in that Captain America fandom right now. Like, that's my bread and butter right now. But um, yeah, not even so much like the content, as I said. But when you start talking with other creators, whether it be people who write, uh, people who write fan fiction, people who do fan art, um, because it's so widespread, like you can talk to someone in the Ukraine and um, about fandom. Yeah. And then as you get to know someone a bit more, you start getting a bit more personal and you learn about their experiences and the things that they're passionate about. And it sort of opens up your eyes to something like things you may not have even considered before. Um, and just, you know, like short answer, yes, totally informs your worldview. Long answer, we could probably do an entire podcast about <laughs> that topic alone, because it is just, you know, yeah. speaking with other people like that's what fandom is like you're all there for one thing, because, you know, you you like Steve Rogers. But once you start engaging on a bit more personal level, you you find out things about people, about cultures, about other places in the world that you might not have even considered before totally not on your radar and all of a sudden it's like wow well this person that I have become friends with and who I care about is passionate about these things so I'm a good friend I am passionate about these things as well or at least care about them you know oh definitely I was going to when I thought about this question I was going to say that I felt like fandom informed my worldview in part because the separation between creator and uh, reader or consumer um, is just like so hazy like right. it's barely there you could definitely be both or you generally will interact directly with the people whose mm -hmm. you know fan fiction you read right so I feel like it gives me a much stronger sense of like um, I'm not separate right. from like the um, the creative works that I consume like I can create my own first of all, and mm -hmm. also, like, I can interact with the people who created them. So, you know, it just makes me feel much less like, um, uh, 
I'm looking for a word now. Excitedly and anxiously screaming into the void? <laughs> no, I was going to say, like, it makes me feel less like I'm supposed to be passive, you know? Um, yeah, that's a good point. Um, but uh, since you mentioned it, though, like interacting with the, the um, yeah, the fact of interacting with other people, like, um, <laughs> I was recently thinking about Canadian identity as a possible topic, and okay. um yeah and I was just like you know because because obviously you know everyone has their own thoughts about what that is um and mm-hmm. I was like you know this is what makes me think that there must be some sort of Canadian identity though I couldn't describe it is that I have noticed that when I interact with people in fandom who are from wherever in Canada like it you know like I I feel like I almost kind of instinctively pair up with them you know, right? without even sometimes without even knowing where they're actually from, but it just seems yeah. like very like straightforward, like like we get each other somehow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, that's got to mean something. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Now that you've mentioned that, I I have experienced that before. Like you're in like a group chat or something, or someone posts something on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever, and like I don't know if it's just like there's a you in the world in the word color mm-hmm. oh. and they say please and thank you or something and you just sort of you just sort of get like the vibe like are you canadian and like sometimes it's yes sometimes it's no but you just like you just sort of like come together like you know like like i don't know it's just it's very fascinating i was gonna say, oh and like i do feel like on sort of the same level former british colonies like I feel like I immediately um, understand people from Australia <laughs> or like, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like usually we're like, yeah, it, it, you make sense to me. Um, if, if it's okay with you, I think we'll move on to our yeah, main sure. topic, which is a topic that I suggested and that has to do with my own personal experience. So I guess I'll, I'll start. I kind of wanted to come in saying like employment insurance should matter to people because it has an impact on like broadly social stability in terms of like avoiding very big sudden changes in income Uh, but more specifically I think people should care about it because they're paying for it if they have um, an insurable employment Uh, if they work for themselves if they're like independent workers they're not paying for employment insurance but if you have a job at I don't know any job where your income tax is deducted automatically you're also paying for employment insurance. Um, I applied for employment insurance. Um, I got very lucky, I would say, because I got some really good advice. Mm-hmm. So someone um, suggested that I go see this um, community group called Mouvement Action Chômage in Montreal. They're like, they're partly a lobbying group, but they're also partly just um, community support and they help people who, well, mainly they help people who have problems with employment insurance, but they also just inform. So they make this booklet and it explains how employment insurance has changed since 1941. And also it explains how are you admissible? How do, would you know? Here's the criteria. Here's how it changes by region, et cetera, et cetera. So they suggested that I apply as soon as possible. The money you would or would not receive, depending on your admissibility, comes from deductions on your pay. It also comes from contributions from your employer. Um, That's one of the reasons 
employers often prefer to hire people who are independent workers and they hire them like under contract instead of um, giving them like an employee status um, because that's one of the things they have to pay extra on top of your salary. Um, who's admissible? It depends on how many hours you've worked and whether you had a job that was insurable. Honestly, like call Service Canada um, and just be armed with the patience you need to call Service Canada. Um, <laughs> like you. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean, right? <laughs> oh my like, God. I think that like, what, yeah. Well, yeah, go for it. You were going to say something. I was going to say the problem with Service Canada, or at least on my end, anytime I've had to contact them, is unless there is an agent available, like right then and yeah. there you're not talking to anybody. Like, you can't leave a message. Mm. Like, you can't just go through the motions of going through, like, uh, press one for this, press two for that. Like, unless there is a human person available, you're not speaking with anyone. Yeah. At least that's been my experience in contacting Service Canada. Yeah. And it's super frustrating because no one wants to talk to Service Canada. It's usually a last resort for a lot of people, like you can't find information on their website or you, they've put like a hold on your account or something to that effect. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's a last resort yeah. and it's not, it's not easy to talk to a person there. So yes, you have to have patience. You have to basically carve out a few hours of your day to just sit and wait on the phone. Yeah. Which. And you know, I feel like. I don't know. One of the, <laughs> one of the best pieces of advice I've gotten is anything you do that involves like bureaucracy or paperwork, just plan for three times whatever you, the time you think it's going to take. <laughs> and like that way you won't yeah. get angry or anxious or you're less likely mm-hmm. to. You probably yeah. will anyway, you know, but um, <laughs> yeah. but like if like be just like the willingness to put yourself through that just spares you so much hell later on. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, like broadly, um, to be admissible for employment insurance, you have to have like an insurable job and worked what amounts to full time for three months. So it could be like longer, but part time, but like calculate, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. is um, 35 hours a week for 12 weeks. And that's approximately it. If you think that, you know, your case is more complicated than that, you're better off trying to put in a call or like other organizations like uh, Mouvement Action Chômage, who are just like really nice and will spend whatever amount of time you need and give you all the advice you could possibly need. Um, If you're admissible, then you will get 55% of your income for a length of time that comes out to about six months depending on how long you worked, how many like insurable hours you worked before that. So in my case, I worked almost two years at a company full time. Um, I'm admissible for a total of 32 weeks at 55% of my income. And then how to apply. And this is a thing I wanted to go into uh, in the commentary. Yeah, it's an online application. But as questionnaires go, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's misleading. But it did seem sort of calculated to get you to say stuff that's not in your favor Um, yeah they don't want you to apply for it almost yeah and I figured maybe that was a leftover from like Harper Mm. um (laughs) but yeah which I guess we can gripe about that later um but yeah when I went to see that community group they did say like yeah it was terrible with Harper there was like this whole scandal about there being quotas 
Oh. Did you hear about this? No, I didn't. Yeah. But tell me yeah. more. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did you really not? Um, no, it was... I didn't. Oh, my goodness. And maybe I spotted it. Like, there was a news item maybe last week. And I guess I spotted it because it's on my mind. So this woman who, like, a whistleblower, she sent documents um, that show that there were quotas of um, employment insurance beneficiaries being cut. Oh my god! Like they, yeah, they had to find reasons to cut their benefits. Yeah. Wow. Um, it was like big numbers, right? Oh um, and anyway, the news item last week was that she has not. She can't find work now because no one wants to hire a whistleblower. No. Which is amazing. I know. Yeah. <laughs> It's wild, right? Wow, that is wild. I can't believe I didn't hear about this. I, it like when when I read that, I was like, yeah, this does kind of ring a bell. Mm-hmm. But it rings a bell in the way that like I remember hearing something like this, but thinking to myself that I didn't really get what the implications of it were. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just like, I would need to know more to know in what way I should care. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, that that yeah. totally makes sense. And like, um, as to the history of employment insurance in, in Canada specifically, it, um, it followed the Great Depression. The only really interesting tidbit to me was how there had to be a change to the Constitution because technically everything with regards to labor is a provincial capacity. But uh, like one of the books I read said that the federal government spent many years saying like, oh, we can't do anything about employment insurance because it's a provincial capacity. Sorry. Whereas like the provinces were all like, please, please take care of it. (laughs) But they were all like, no, no, they can't. The provinces, they're stopping us. Help, you know. (laughs) Um, But that all got sorted out in like 1941. And as I was telling my friends this week, um, it was like one of those things, reading about something about Canadian history, where like, inevitably, there's this one paragraph that says, yeah, so this was installed, and it it worked pretty good. There were like several issues. Here's a list. But then in 1971, Trudeau showed up and fixed everything. Um, (laughs) Which, of course, is a weird experience to me, because I grew up hearing about how he screwed Quebec over. But like, (laughs) Um, so I'm always like, damn it, I hate it when I like him more. Um, oh, so confusing to me. Um, (laughs) Very conflicting emotions. Yes, for real. Um, and in the, uh, the only other note I included for the show today was that, um, like among similar countries, Canada is kind of like on average, in terms of like generosity of program and cost. But of course, um, the variations in countries is very big because that both, you know, that includes like the US, but also the Netherlands. So like, you know, you have like countries where (laughs) they offer much more in terms of unemployment um, Mm -hmm. support. So what are your thoughts? What are your immediate thoughts? About employment insurance and how difficult it is to get. Um, Yeah. You know what? I feel like I will be saying this a lot on this podcast, but Mm -hmm. I feel like Canada just needs to do a better job of taking care of its most disenfranchised citizens. Yeah. I understand that there has to be some red tape involved with collecting employment insurance. There has to be. However, when you make something so difficult that some people are just going to think, well, I'm not going to bother. 
you're cheating those yeah. people out of yeah. something that is rightfully theirs. I had uh, a somewhat similar experience. I didn't get fired from my position, but as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, my partner and I moved out west. And so uh, he had a job lined up. I did not. Yeah. So when I moved, I applied for employment insurance, kind of thinking I wasn't going to get it. But uh, my rationale was, well, I've moved with my partner on the application form. That is a reason for basically you to be given employment insurance. Yeah. However, once I got my assessment back, the takeaway from that was, well, we weren't common law and we hadn't been together long enough. Therefore, I did not need to leave my previous position. Therefore, I was ineligible for employment insurance. And on a deeper level, I understood. I'm like, well, yes, okay, we were common law and we have not been together that long. But on the flip side, the implication that I did not deserve the money that was essentially mine because, well, you didn't have to quit your job. Well, okay, yes, but we were starting a life together somewhere else. I'm not going to stay in Halifax. So I don't know. I just, they need to make you feel less like a burden for needing assistance at the end of the day is what my thought is. And Atlantic Canada in general, we have a lot of seasonal workers. So, um, you know, with respect to fishing, uh, and tourism and things like that. Yeah, and, and like uh, um, the operations in the port. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So there's, it's very difficult sometimes for um, people in Atlantic Canada and in other regions where there are more seasonal workers to obtain employment insurance because you don't necessarily work long enough in order to qualify. Um, yeah. But it sounds like that. Ottawa is rolling out a pilot program, which is going to help some seasonal workers. And it looks like a lot of these places are in Eastern and Atlantic Canada and some locations in Quebec as well. And basically, it will give them a few extra weeks of employment insurance so that they can make it through the winter, so they can eat, so they can afford to live. And I'm of the frame of mind better late than never, but the fact that it took till 2018 for this to be evaluated, I don't understand why sometimes it's so difficult for our government to help people that need it the most. You judge your your government by how they treat their most disenfranchised citizens. And Canada on the whole, I think, just needs to do a better job. I feel like it's such a difficult lesson to learn that so many decisions that are taken Mm -hmm. that have a direct impact on us can very well be based on Mm -hmm. almost arbitrary unfounded information and unemployment insurance like um the benefits were you know progressively Mm -hmm. cut more and more starting around the beginning of the 80s and then there was like a very big dip during the Mulroney administration in the early 90s but it was it was wild because Mm -hmm. he cut benefits but the contributions were the same. So there was like this massive surplus of money. So like, first of all, you look at this and you're like, well, it's not because the program couldn't afford it. So why? Why would you cut benefits? And it can only be for some sort of like ideological reason. Or, I mean, I prefer to imagine that it's not exactly ideological, that it's more like this thing where you, sometimes you make decisions just based on like what seems obvious to you, but like you didn't really look into it. I'm sorry, but like we all do this, right? I can't even mm-hmm. especially fault someone for doing it. I'm it just like 
think it's important once someone's pointed it out (laughs) that you just kind of go, wait a minute. Yeah. So I think that like in terms of unemployment, like I was just reading Mm -hmm. the entry about employment insurance on the Canadian Encyclopedia and just like fell off my chair about how biased it was. There's this whole paragraph about how well, you know, people debate the value of unemployment insurance all the time because Mm -hmm. the thing is, if you offer insurance to people, then they won't have an incentive to go back to work. Which is bullshit. And like that's... (laughs) Well, well, exactly. It's like all the case studies don't say that at all. It's mm-hmm. like if you had the false sight, you know, to, to take a, an example that might be a bit too left field, but, you know, you tell me what you think. It's like if people thought that having birth control would just encourage people to take more risks. <laughs> and in practice, no. that's not what happens at all. It's just if you give people more information and more means, then they're, they're more able to take charge mm-hmm. of their own lives. I feel like it's a judgment, um, like a value judgment on my part. Like, I just feel like it's important mm-hmm. to take care of people who are in a position where if they, if someone fires them, then they've got no other, no other resources, right? So, like, they're the people with less power in that relationship. And mm-hmm. I feel like it's important to take care of them. So there's, like, this value judgment aspect. But, like, there's also just the fact that, like, the statistics don't say what you think, you know? <laughs> like, like, there's no, like, practical, like, statistical reason to cut, un- like, I, I, I keep alternating between saying employment insurance and unemployment insurance because the name changed at some point in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so, like, I'm all like, oh, like It's the same I'm, thing. I'm just saying unemployment every- insurance. It's the same Employment thing, insurance, yeah. the same thing. Yeah, and like um, the book I read about the differences between countries, they use like unemployment compensation. Unemployment is defined as being without a job, but being Mm -hmm. able to work, available to work and actively seeking work in the labor market, which Mm -hmm. is an interesting definition if you think about it, because like that technically has no reason to exclude independent workers. Right. But like, I guess that's a whole other thing. Mm hmm. I had a thought, and now it's left my brain. Oh, um, no. Isn't I'm that sorry, the worst? That's okay. That's okay. I'm sure it'll come back to me in the middle of the night. I'll just bolt right up in bed and <laughs> shout it. And Oh, I remember now. It was going back to what you mentioned about, well, if you give people money for free, then they have no incentive to work. And I think I muttered bullshit. Um, but, um, yeah, that's yeah. that's a very common talking point mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. And you are always going to have people who, yes, they will absolutely just want something for free. But statistically, historically speaking, a lot of people Mm -hmm. don't want to just sit around and do nothing. Uh, People want to work. People want to contribute to society. And basically, whether or not people are deserving of unemployment insurance, you can't say some people are deserving of it and other people are not because you don't agree with what they do with it at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? Because ultimately it'll take like much more energy to start making detailed decisions about who deserves what and then checking up on like what they actually do and basically like exerting all this control. Like there Mm -hmm. will be a much greater cost in terms of money, in terms of time, in terms of energy than if you just figured like, look, this is what we're going to offer. 
Some mm-hmm. people might use it in a way that we're not comfortable with, but like what our studies have shown is that that's a minority of people. So we're just gonna we're okay with that quote unquote loss, you know, if, if that's mm-hmm. something we care about. Maybe like a more interesting and again not exactly an analogy, but like I, I keep thinking also about how when I went back to school, I. It was pretty recently, right? So I was at McGill like from 2012 to 2015. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, they stopped charging like fees for books returned late to the library because it's cheaper ultimately. Yeah. In terms of like money and time and checking up on people and blah, 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 blah to just not impose late fees <laughs> and instead just like write it like when someone requests a book and someone else has borrowed it like they just write to them to say like we need you to return this book mm-hmm. and then if they do return it late then they basically charge the book you know okay they, so it's like let's do things in a way that's that makes sense we're not expressing this sort of like latent desire to punish people for not following our rules or mm-hmm. something yeah you'll never get everybody to agree on like who quote deserves social programs Mm -hmm. but like I think we should all be willing to deal with like a certain number of people who are not using this program the way it was intended Mm -hmm. because like it's beneficial to enough other people and and indirectly beneficial to anyone even if they're not using employment insurance themselves Mm -hmm. yeah you know it comes full circle in a way and I'm now that I've said I'm not necessarily sure that full circle is the right term but you know say say my neighbor loses their job and mm-hmm. for whatever reason they don't qualify for employment insurance um then all of a sudden my neighbor is suddenly living on the street and as a yeah. result of that they get sick uh they have nowhere to go so they end up going to the emergency room more times than they would if they had basically a place to live that in turn is oh my god that's perfect that's exactly it yeah it's more of a cost on our healthcare system it seems like a no-brainer to me um so i I can't think of anything to like really finish this topic and i thought yeah questions uh we don't actually have any questions from listeners so far because well we don't um (laughs) we haven't uh, we haven't broadcast we don't have listeners Um, yet this is where you the listeners come in yeah yeah yeah. Um, so I thought that the first question could just be like, hey, Megan and Marie-France, what's your podcast about? Do you want to answer first? Do I want to answer first what our podcast is about? Yeah. I, I know what it's about, but I can't find the words. One of my favorite things to say to my partner anytime I like just have word salad. I'm like, look, do you know how much effort it takes to make words go? So I can't really. <laughs> oh, so much effort, right? Right. So, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> so, Marie France, what is our podcast about? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, when I pitched this to you, my pitch was do you want to do a podcast that is broadly politics themed? And that was my pitch. In the aims and purposes of the show, I wrote to make boring stuff that has direct impact on your life interesting. And my aim is also political engagement that is neither ironic nor defeatist. I want to finish the show with a quote um, from my most favorite book that I read about employment insurance. The book is called No Fault of Their Own, um, Unemployment in the Canadian Welfare State from 1914 to 1941. And it's from the intro. It says, unemployment is a, as John Garrity points out, disease of capitalism. It is the obverse side of the wage labor. 
Only those who work for wages or a salary who are at liberty to quit their jobs, yet who may also be deprived of them by someone else, can become unemployed. In Canada, as in other capitalist societies throughout the world, unemployment emerged as a major political issue in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as progressively more people made the transition from self-employment in agriculture to wage employment in industry. So that concludes our first podcast. We did it. Megan, would you like to add anything? <laughs> uh, no, I think that quote sums it up pretty, pretty fantastically. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me with this. Absolutely.